Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Josh Hodges. I'm your host of Online with an Architect. Uh, very happy to have uh, Melissa Palmer with us today. Uh, good afternoon, Melissa. Hi, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, fantastic. It's it's my pleasure. So uh, thank you as well for uh, becoming a member of the uh, the end to end team. It's uh, fantastic <laughs> to have someone of your talent uh, on the team and uh, and to make me look good. So. Please keep You're doing very that. welcome, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's great to work with such a group of elite architects and like-minded people. It's, it's really been a pleasure so far. Fantastic. Well, today we've got a great topic, actually, and one that, that I certainly really like, but you're far more qualified than I am. So we're going to talk ransom, uh, ransomware. So One of my favorites, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. I feel weird saying that ransomware is my one of my favorite things to talk about. It makes me feel, I don't know. Yeah, actually, that's a bit polarizing, isn't it? It's like, I like talking about ransomware, but really what we mean is we like talking about how to minimize the risk and resolve exactly. issues if it, if it does occur. For those out there, we're not out there stealing your data. For sure, that's not our business model. So, <laughs> so, um, so let's kick off. Can you give us, just for anyone listening who might not understand what we're talking about, what is ransomware just at a conceptual layer? Yeah, absolutely. So ransomware uh, is kind of self-explanatory where you think about it. A malicious actor gets into your environment and they hold you ransom. They hold something ransom, and that can be a couple of different things. The two most common things are encryption. They'll encrypt your data and hold it ransom that you have to pay them to get the encryption key, or exfiltration. They'll steal data and threaten to release it unless you pay them. So kind of their their whole goal through this is to make you pay the ransom. That is their kind of single-minded approaches they want you to pay. So they're going to get in there and they're going to recap it. So basically, they're going to make your life hell and yes. really encourage you to pay that because trying to resolve it in other ways might take too long. Might take too long. You might not even be able to do it. That's the scarier part. Mm, absolutely. And for sure, someone out there is trying to steal my identity at the moment. So best oh, of no. luck to, to that person <laughs> um, with that. But uh, yeah, it came from a data breach. So my driver's license was breached mm -hmm. um, and released. So it wasn't even there someone wanting go. to pay them. It was, it was released, and uh, I have a new driver's license now. So, again, good luck with uh, the rest of your endeavors uh, with my identity. But, uh, look, it's a serious issue, and, and for sure uh, the impact uh, can be very significant. So the organization who was breached in, in my case uh, is, is suffering a lot, which is very unfortunate. Um, but I think it's not given enough priority because the impact of a breach can be, you know, very widespread, especially when there's millions of people impacted in the case where mine was. Exactly, right? And remember, these kind of um, malicious actors are sophisticated, right? They're going to go after people they think are going to pay most of the time. So we see a lot of public entities, you know, in your case, right? Well, let's go get all the driver's licenses. They're going to pay yeah. for that, right? Uh, you see a lot of uh, big trend in healthcare organizations, right? Ransoming healthcare organizations. Um, they want to get paid they want to wreak havoc and they do their research, right? They're going to see how much an organization makes because they're going to come with a ransom number and they're going to do the math. Be like, you should be able to pay that. So pay up. I know you got the money. I've looked at your balance sheets. I looked at your uh, public financial documents because you're a publicly traded company. This shouldn't be a problem. So come on, guys, let's go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the other thing that's really interesting to consider um, I've lost my train of thought, actually. It was very interesting for a very short space of time, obviously, but uh, is is just the impact. So when a, when a ransomware person is looking at an organization, and like you say, they've identified a company that can probably afford it, you know, fair enough, but, you know, what if they can't? 
You know, what if that company really can't afford it? And they're then... going to have a really bad time though, because these people, they might negotiate some, but again, they want to get paid at the end of the day saying, I don't have the money really isn't going to get you anywhere. Your, your data is going to get leaked or you're never recovering your systems. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So let's jump into maybe a, an example. Uh, I obviously okay. gave a, a very personal example of my driver's license being breached. Can you give us a, an example you, you found interesting of like... <sighs> Yeah, I've seen uh, a lot of different things. Probably my favorite example to talk about is just kind of the ransomware as a service model, mm. right? So you have these organizations who are actually, we've seen through leaks from the ransomware organizations, they're pretty sophisticated. Uh, there's these organizations where affiliates can come in and get the ransomware. They don't have to have any kind of skill whatsoever in writing malicious code or anything like that, right? They get the ransomware, they just need to get access to a network or environment and then they can deploy it and the ransomware group takes care of the rest and they get a cut of the ransom, right? That's a very popular operating model and it's very scary because it really lowers the bar, right? Anybody who could get in could potentially deploy ransomware in your environment. So it's mm. not just people out there writing malware and trying to get in, right? No, no, there's all these different specialists, right? So let's say let's say I'm, I'm not a nice person for a minute, right? Let's say I'm like, an RDP specialist or something. Ransomware deployment protocol, by the way, not remote desktop protocol, ransomware <laughs> deployment protocol. Let's say like I'm a super elite RDP hacker, right? And I just go around and I scan the internet, I find RDP and I get in and I deploy ransomware, right? There's people that do that. They have very sophisticated skill sets in certain vulnerabilities and that's all they do, right? They get in with this, these vulnerabilities, they go in, they deploy the ransomware, they profit. So that's a popular operating model that's disturbing because again, the barrier at entry is so low for your environment to be compromised. Yeah, absolutely. It's super scary. So more attackers, more yep. sophistication, uh, and more often. Yeah. So I think the one thing that I was going to mention before is that you're really looking for the low-hanging fruit as one of those ransomware <laughs> yeah. people. Right? You're looking Funny for you mention that, Josh. Yeah. It's, the low-hanging fruit, the areas that people don't bother to really secure or pay attention to. Like maybe, Maybe it's like a really critical piece of infrastructure. It might be something mm. that, you know, runs a lot of different things and it works really well, right? It just runs, right? You don't have to do much to it. So they don't, they might not patch it. They might not pay attention to it because it works and it's super critical. So they're just going to let it do its thing and ignore it for the most part. That yeah. becomes a very, very juicy target. Yeah, but people would never do that. Anything no. critical, they obviously pay a lot of attention to and, and maintenance is obviously a high priority and security is a high priority. So there's definitely no example out there that's close to our heart that gets <sighs> ignored and neglected in this space. Uh, definitely not, though. I think it was February of this year. There was the biggest uh, VMware ransomware attack ever, and it was hitting ESXi host directly connected to the internet. Um, and it was just crippling hundreds of systems. Uh, there are a lot of really interesting things about it. Like they didn't quite know what they were doing at the beginning. So they weren't actually encrypting the VMDK flat files, just the VMDK files. So it was easy to recover at first because like, haha, you didn't even get the good stuff. But they caught up pretty quickly that they messed up and fixed it. Um, so it's kind of a target. It's kind of ignored. Not a lot of people talk about it. And not a lot of people realize that your VMware environment is actually pretty probably pretty vulnerable to a ransomware attack. And that is where the malicious actors are going to head first. They're going to head up to two areas near and dear to my heart, right? If you look at my career, they're going to head to your VMware environment and they're going to go try to cripple your backups too. Mm. And these um, ransomware as a service gangs, 
really interesting. They provide documentation on how to compromise systems, right? So I've seen some leaked playbooks where it's like, here's how you get into VMware and encrypt things. Here's how you go to this particular backup software and kill the backups, right? There's, they have detailed instructions on once they're in, once they have access, here's what you do to wreak the most havoc as quickly as possible. Isn't that scary that the documentation from these people is potentially better than the documentation in some organizations? I got well. news for you. It is better than the documentation <laughs> I've seen in many organizations. It's kind of disturbing. Like I was reading it. I'm like, wow, this is actually pretty easy to follow and well-documented. Like this is, this is disturbing how easy this is. Like you could literally have no VMware experience whatsoever. Mm. And this was just listed out so well that you, you could go in and do it. Yeah, and obviously they do that because they're making money out of it. So this isn't oh, yeah. an organization of people who are putting all their time and effort in just for the fun of it, right? They're actually getting a lot of people paying ransoms. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that can be ignored certainly today and shouldn't have been ignored for many years. But uh, yeah, I think what we're really uh, focusing on here for those who haven't caught on is, you know, we're both VMware fans for a very long time. You know, there's so much value in virtualization uh, and what VMware brings to the table, yet we feel there's a huge gap where we've got these critical infrastructures running our business critical apps and our EUC and, you know, we're up in the public cloud. We're all over the place with all this critical infrastructure, but then we, we miss We're the ignoring it, level. right? Because the tendency <laughs> is always, if it's not broken, don't mm -hmm. fix it. If VMware's working, you don't touch that environment, right? Look at, you could like bring down production if you mess stuff up, right? Well, that's not exactly true, right? Uh, VMware has actually put a significant amount of effort into the years to make patching VMware environments super easy, right? Update managers now become lifecycle manager, all that kind of good stuff. It's super easy to do. It's really easy to keep your environment up to date. But again, there's still this tendency of like, oh no, we can't touch it, we might break something. Which is why people don't bother doing penetration testing on VMware. If you go Google, VMware penetration testing, every search result will be how to build a pen test lab in VMware. There's nothing talking about what should you be looking at in a VMware environment to check if it's secure. It, it just doesn't exist out there. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a huge gap in the market. And obviously that's something we're focusing on for that reason is because first of all, it's so critical. And second of all, it's a huge gap where there's just not the skills and experience uh, to deal with these situations. Um, and probably one of the most recent projects I looked at um, one of the business cases was we need to address ransomware, right? We've heard about these various organizations in Australia who've been compromised, which there's been quite a few, and we need to address this. So we're going to speak to our, um, our storage provider. I won't name the storage provider. They didn't do anything wrong, but uh, <laughs> speak to the storage provider and we want to enable snapshots. And I said, okay, cool. That's going to be part of the solution, but snapshots. that's going to be this much of the solution. Yeah. Right, it's it's a very small part, and without all the supporting pieces, that's just going to get compromised too. So, you know, the organization was like, "Oh, really? I, I thought snapshots were secure and blah blah blah." And it's like, yes, within a certain context, snapshots can be useful, but you have to think about what if they're not available? What if the storage array itself has been compromised? What if someone has gotten be. into it and deleting it? <laughs> you know, so. You know, just doing a snapshot or a backup is not a, not sufficient because, like you say, these attackers actually target your backup so that when they encrypt your production, you don't have a backup, so you have no choice. They lead you down the path of pain mm -hmm. because it's the path of least resistance. And in all honesty, it's probably the quickest and best way out for a lot of companies because they have no other choice. Right. 
I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those sad, but true things. And you can say what you want, but at the end of the day, it becomes a business decision, right? Mm. Unless you want to go out of business, which yeah. and a lot of companies have, like right? us, We it's talk happened. about business. It's a business decision. <laughs> we, we go, okay, we're going to implement a solution because it's giving us business value, or we're not going to implement a solution because the ROI is not there. And but- that's why part of the reason why I think so many people suffer with ransomware. Like I've done a lot of disaster recovery too. And I've been on, you know, in the vendor side, I've been on a lot of receiving end of, well, you know, your pricing is too much for a system that we're not going to use, right? Mm. Because disaster is so unlikely. It's um, less expensive to accept the risk and have to rebuild everything later, right? Mm. Than actually to implement the solution. But the risk is so low that well, it's cheaper, it's not going to happen, whatever. The paradigm shifts with ransomware, right? the probability of this risk is much, much higher. And people don't have the infrastructure in place. They don't even have the processes in place for DR that they could use to bootstrap ransomware recovery off, right? They never did it because, well, it's cheaper not to. We'll just, you know, the likelihood of zombies eating my data center is so low, I'm not even gonna bother with a DR plan. Mm. And until organizations kind of get burned, a lot of times they'll kind of lean that way. And I think that's part of the reason why we've seen so much trouble with ransomware. People just were not ready to recover because they were ignoring disaster recovery for so long. Yeah, they're just not prepared. So obviously, if we're not prepared for any scenario in life, we're not going to respond terribly well. Uh, And I think that's one of the topics I wanted to to cover. And we're jumping around a little bit. So that's (laughs) my fault. But one of the things I really like about these hyperscaler and hypervisor solutions is the ability to quickly stand up a recovery environment to test something that's isolated, something that is there quite quickly, that's, you know, on VMware, and it looks roughly similar to what you've got on prem. And you can attempt to recover or you could use it. You could actually have like an AVS or something. You could have an environment. It could be compromised and you could go, cool, I'll stand up a net new one. Once I've worked out all my problems, I've actually got an option to recover in a timely manner. Whereas on-prem, it's like, how do you recover? Let's say you've, you know, you think you've eliminated the ransomware threat. You think. Um, You think. You don't know, right? You're not sure. You think. It's a guess. And then you restore and then you build production back up again and it's lying dormant somewhere. It's lying dormant or even worse, the attacker is still in there and they're going to sit for two to three months and they're going to hit you again because you never figured out how they got in and you never remediated that either. There's there's so many things that could kind of go wrong. Um, I actually kind of love that model, especially for ransomware, especially having Mm -hmm. a small environment waiting for you and your favorite VMware cloud um, environment. It's got everything you need. It's got a copy of your backups. It's got all, you know, your backup and security systems there waiting and ready to go. And when disaster strikes, you just start scaling it up and you start restoring or doing whatever you need to do. That's a key component of a lot of things I've talked about over the last couple of years. Um, but, but here's the beautiful part too of these disaster recovery environments or ransomware recovery environments, recovery environments that no one mentions. I remember for... The longest time when we talked about ransomware and how the malicious actors would get in, it would be clicking a link, right? Somebody clicked that email, bad. Um, But that's changed in the last year or so and it's kind of switched to vulnerabilities, Mm. right? And like, just like no one wants to patch VMware because it works, there's always a hesitance to patch systems because you don't want to break something. Well, you know what? Why don't you use that recovery environment for? patch testing so you can actually fix these vulnerabilities. Absolutely. And I think this is another value that, that we look at is, is how do we mitigate risks? And if we go right. down the list of how, what the risk is, what the impact is, what the likelihood is, right? And then we look at mitigation. Yeah. These environments in these public cloud providers, choose your favorite public cloud. 
run a VMware environment, do your testing, keep your backups there, right? And every now and again, you could just decommission that environment and start up a net new right? yeah. to ensure that it is compliant, that it is in the best, you know, up-to-date with versions and things like that. And you've got a test environment, you've got a recovery environment, and at, in my opinion, a very low cost for the value it brings. Absolutely. I think it's very, very hard to, as architects, if someone wants me to design them an environment that's all on-prem across multiple data centers with all this stuff, great. Yeah, right. All you can do is make me rich. Right? <laughs> it's a lot of work um, to do it properly. Whereas if we can design just the pieces that go on top of something like AVS, then mm -hmm. it's just a much easier and quicker outcome. It's a lower cost and the value is there. It's consistent. It's well known. You know, if I get hit by a bus, obviously my documentation is going to be at a standard that's sufficient to handle <laughs> else, of course. But, you know, if I get hit by a bus, there's, there's plenty of people out there who know AVS and know VMware that could take that on. Whereas when it's a bespoke custom environment in your premises, that's very rarely the case that someone can just oh, yeah. jump in and take it over. And something you really hit on is how quick it is, right? Because if you're an organization and you don't have a recovery strategy, well, you should, and speed's going to be important, right? Because it's essentially you're, you're on the clock, right? It's, I kind of say it's not really if, it's more like when. Mm. Um, so speed is something to be said. I don't have to find a data center. I don't have to deal with power or cooling or any of that stuff. I don't have to order equipment, right? It's just, I'm going to go against something I always say, because I'm like, the cloud isn't magic, right? In this case, it sort of is, right? Because I can go order my VMware environment and it's it's ready to go, right? I can immediately within a couple hours start doing work and start getting ready to recover. Absolutely. It's far quicker to recover into one of those environments than building something up yourself. Oh yeah. And, and I think even if you could do it on premises as quick, which I think is basically impossible, you can't guarantee that what's done on premises is not still compromised. Oh yeah. So something <laughs> completely net new out of the environment that was compromised is so valuable because that's mitigating an enormous subsequent risk uh, of that, you know, that dormant attacker that you mentioned earlier. So I've had a lot of customers tell me when I was trying to get them to adopt some kind of backup or disaster recovery solution of oh, like, well, you know, our ransomware recovery plan is we just recover everything in place. I'm like, okay, but what about the infrastructure you're recovering to? How are you gonna make sure that's not compromised? And what's worse is if law enforcement's involved, they might come in and quarantine it. They're going to be like, they might be like, hey, you can't really touch anything because we need to take a look and investigate this, right? So your plan of, oh, we'll just recover in place. Maybe you might want to think about that a little bit more, right? Because if you just recover to a compromised environment or you can't use that environment unless you have multiple recovery locations, you're, you're done. You're dead in the water. Mm. And also the impact of recovering to that environment. You're more than likely going to have such an enormous impact of that recovery, that you'll kind of be offline or as good as offline oh, yeah. during that process. Uh, so again, that's a huge business impact. You know, your recovery time is is out the window. Um, your recovery point is probably out the window as well at this point because you've had so much compromise. Um, but yeah, I think net new environments is so important. And mm -hmm. you know, the fact that we have these solutions as options now, I feel like customers can very quickly get from where they are today, which most customers are at the very basic or zero level of resiliency right. in DR to, you know, a 101, 201 level in a very timely manner. So I think it's it's just a no-brainer. Let's get that little sandpit environment, a couple of nodes. The, the cost of that environment compared to the cost of a data breach, right? We're talking worlds apart in most cases. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're generalizing a bit here, but, 
you know, if your business is going to be offline for, I think the stat was 14 days, then there was like a 90% chance of bankruptcy in the following 12 months was a stat that I remember mm. seeing somewhere. So I didn't just make that up, everyone. It sounds good, but I didn't make it up. So <laughs> if, if we're down for, say, a week, well, your chance of bankruptcy is still very high. Right? It might be 50% instead of 90%. But I certainly don't want my business having a 50% risk of going bankrupt. Of course not. No one does. So I think that's an easy way to to start the process of of remediation and and risk mitigation. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So the other thing I really like about uh, these hypervisor solutions on the hyperscalers is the ability to move. So (laughs) let's say we've got a compromise or we've got a, a service difficulty or it's let's move on to DR slightly, let's say we've got provider A is having a big global outage or a resource shortage or any any kind of issue. Because like you say, the cloud's not magic. There's not infinite numbers of... It's literally a data center. It's just not your data center, right? Things happen in data centers. We all know this. Exactly, right? So if we can go from, you know, provider A to provider B with a pretty similar solution, right? It's still the VMware layer. It's still the same tools, Mm -hmm. right? And versioning might be slightly different, but... Virtual machines obviously are abstracted away from hardware, so we can move them, right? The storage layer is is vSAN, right? So that's compatible. So fantastic. We can move from one site to another, right, and get a pretty good outcome. Now, again, the connectivity is a is a challenge. It's not magic. There's there's some complexity there. That's why people need to engage us. But apart from that, you know, conceptually, we have an option of going from one place to another place pretty easily these days, where we didn't right. have that even say, five years ago. I mean, VMC no, in the US was maybe four years ago, four and a half, something like that. But five years ago, we really didn't have any options. It was all manual. It was very manual. And as we all know, uh, <laughs> manual processes during a event of some type, whether it be a traditional disaster, a cyber event, yeah, it's not going to go some so well, right? Me as a human being, I don't want to be like trying to rebuild a VMware environment with the CEO like yelling at me that nothing's working yeah. and we're down and we're going to lose money and stuff like that. Like I don't, I don't want that pressure in my life. Right? It all needs to be kind of automated and to some extent done ahead of time, right? And the great thing about and all tested, the, and tested, tested right? and validated so that we're not stressed at three a.m. in the morning. We know it's going to work because we've done it. I've seen some it's very not a big smart deal. people make some very simple mistakes at three in the morning. So <laughs> yeah, it's true. You, you can't assume a human can operate in a high stress environment at 3 a.m. in the morning in a cold and horrible data center. Um, so we've got to make their life easy. So when we design a solution, we've got to assume the worst, which is they're tired, they're hungry, they're grumpy, right? right. they've got the flu, whatever it is, or they're not available, even worse. How are we going to recover if our, our principal you know, engineer or architect is not available to lead that? Um, so documentation and automation is obviously key to that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's something that is kind of overlooked, but made a little bit easier when you talk about the VMware cloud solutions. Mm. It becomes super easy because hey, here's the best part. There's really no upskilling your operations teams. It's still VMware. It's just mm. VMware somewhere else, right? Yep. There's no learning curve. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's, again, that's a huge value of these solutions. Uh, so I think, you know, customers who are looking to refresh their data centers should really think very carefully whether that's a good option for them. Because mm-hmm. even if the cost is is a bit different, it's very difficult to factor in the cost of a big outage or a ransomware issue. Right. So if we have a solution where we can actually, you know, stand up a new environment, we're going to save money more than likely. Uh, and, and not only save money, we may well end up with a better outcome day to day. 
Right. Uh, and I think this is the piece people don't necessarily uh, look at so much or consider is if our day-to-day -day operations are more efficient, even if they're slightly more expensive, our staff have time to do other stuff, such as look at the latest ransomware issues, <laughs> mitigate these risks a bit more and, and have more time to spend on focusing on these critical aspects rather than keeping the lights on. Or something that will like make your organization money, right? Versus mm. just kind of, like you said, trying to keep the lights on and figure out what you're going to do. Exactly right. So, and I'm a big fan, as everyone's probably heard me say a few times, of enablement and, and training and certification. And if you give your staff time, they will become better. They will mm -hmm. be challenged. They will enjoy their jobs more. Whereas if you just have them slaving away doing their job day to day with, with no enablement or, or nothing to really challenge them, you'll probably end up losing that staff member. And if you've had yeah. a staff member, loyal staff member, working with your company for a few years or longer, you do not want to lose that intellectual property. No, not at all. So that, that's a, a huge value to your organization. Let's upskill these people. Let's send them on some training, focus on something like ransomware, get them involved with a team of architects like us and build a solution that's going to address the business requirements with that person because they've now got time to do it when we use a, one of these hyperscaler solutions because they're not doing so much day-to-day. -day. Uh, so I think that's yeah a no-brainer. Keep your staff happy. Keep them enabled. Keep them challenged. <laughs> and things will just, happy. everything will work better. Yeah, and, and your chance of having these type of issues is, uh, is much lower. Um, all right, so let's talk. So we've got our VMware layer, whether we're on yes. a hyperscaler or not, whether we're on-prem, doesn't really matter. We've got the same sort of tools available to us, or hopefully we've got those tools available to us. What are some of the like 101 level things that you're seeing companies not doing? <sighs> Where can I start? Um, back up your stuff, number one, and make sure you can recover it. That's like, should be table stakes at this point. Mm. Sadly, it's not always because people lose track of things or oh, well, we were doing production dev, oops, like things like that. So you need to have a good understanding of what your assets are so you can protect them, number one, right? Because you can't recover something if you haven't protected it ahead of time. Mm. So kind of getting in there and really doing a good kind of lay of the land and figuring out what's what is important. And then, like I said, I see so many people kind of just fundamentally ignoring their VMware environments. Like, you know, I mean, we love VMware, but there are like VMware security advisories where there's vulnerabilities and VMware will be like, yeah, you got to go patch your stuff right now. And people don't do it. I mean, with that big ransomware attack, it was running a vulnerable version. There was a vulnerability that was exploited and it was on the internet. So it wasn't hard. Uh, so kind of keeping up to date. And I've kind of noticed a really big gap between the infrastructure or VMware people and the security people, right? The security people don't quite understand the VMware stuff because a server is mm -hmm. a server is a server, right? And the VMware people might not necessarily understand the security stuff, right? Especially the incident response process. I feel like that's an area that a lot of um, even vendors, software vendors don't really talk about enough. It's like, okay, so you might be the backup team. You might be the VMware team. You might be the network team. You might be the security team. But on the day of an event, how are you all going to work together? Like when a cyber event happens, that shouldn't be the first time you all meet each other. Right? Like that's going to be a problem. You all need to have a good working relationship, test this stuff out, make sure you can recover. And a lot of organizations don't kind of have that cross-functional thing going on because mm. 
I don't know, people just don't get along for some reason sometimes. The security team wants to make my life harder because they told me that I can't leave SSH on my ESX host all the time. They make me turn off SSH and I only turn on my knee and then I can't turn it off again. That is such a pain. That's probably the number one way a threat actor is going to get in if you have SSH running, right? Because they're going to get some compromised credentials. Your ESX iHost is probably connected to AD, and they're going to get in there. Like, that is the number one vector. But I was just like, oh, it's too much of a pain to have to turn off and on and off and on. That's the number one thing, right? It's like one of the big ones. Um, so kind of like education across the whole organization of, hey, here's what a cyber event could look like. Here's all the teams that are going to be impacted and here's how we should work together so we can all get back up and running as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I think that comes to the documentation as well. It's like, okay, yes. we've got this event here. What is step one? Like, first of all, who's going to lead the engagement, right? <laughs> we need to know what step one is, right? And it's not a team of people getting in a war room, as they were always called, and going, okay, who's going to help out? What's the problem? Like, no, no, we know what the problem is. We've been compromised. So we should know <laughs> what step one is. We should know what step two, three, ten is. Right? And we should be able to go through that process. Right. Um, and I think the separation of duties that's traditionally happened, you know, I worked for IBM a long time ago and, you know, this is when virtualization was really booming. And, you know, of course, you had the network team, the storage team, the virtualization team, servers, apps, whatever, all these different teams. And, you know, in an organization like IBM, you had to engage people as if they were like external companies. You had yeah, to I, I, I've, I've worked at large companies like that too. Like it, trying to get crazy. myself some storage for my hosts is like a nightmare because they're a completely different group with a completely different director and VP and blah, blah, blah. And Yeah, and they have the this sort of view of the world, which is, you know, is their own view. It's not wrong, but from their perspective, they just want to give you, you know, 100 gig for a server. Whereas we're asking for data stores for lots of servers. So, you know, th there was all that disconnect. And I think we're well beyond the time where those teams should have been collapsed because yeah. we now should be a business outcome focused team right. where we have architects who work together and they have their expertise, sort of like what we do at end to end is we work together and we mesh and we combine our expertise. We don't fight on a solution. We, we talk about what the requirements are. You know, you'll raise something, I'll raise something, we'll make a solution out of it. Um, and there's no ego or attitude or your idea is better exactly, than mine. Exactly, right? We're all working together. Hmm. So I think that's a, a really key thing to, to happen in larger organizations is get your teams aligned um, throughout the initial phase. So this is what I always say to people, get your architect involved day one when you're thinking about something. Yes. Um, so we should be aligning our teams as early as possible in the design process, um, which is why I don't like it when I've been asked in the past to do a design for an environment in isolation of all the other teams because they're too busy <laughs> or, or whatever. Yeah, that never, that never works. I'm like, never works. this piece here needs someone else's input. I can make a guess and I might be right nine out of 10 times. But if I'm wrong, right, this is going to be a huge problem. So I always say, no, no, no. We're going to have all these people involved in the design, frequently reviewing things, making recommendations. And me as the lead architect, I'm going to take all of that input and I'm going to try and mesh it all together. And there's going to be situations where there's going to be a conflict. There's going to right. be a requirement that can't be met with a certain constraint. And then we need to work as a team to get to the business outcome, putting aside our technical opinions. Mm -hmm. If we're constrained by something, whether it's a technical or a business area, we need to work together to work a way around it to achieve the same thing. 
And I don't know why companies don't get that because I'm not that smart and I get that. So I'll never forget this. Similar situation. I was working for a vendor at the time and it was like this massive conference room and it was all the different teams. And that's what we're trying to do. We're learning, like finalize a design, right? All the different teams, all the vendors, all the partners. And no one could agree. So I was like walking between the tables. I felt like I was doing some kind of deal or something like that. Like, all right, like, let's, <laughs> let's talk about this. Talk about the network. Because we're trying to go We're trying to go from Fiber Channel to NFS for the mm. ESXi hosts, right? So that was networking team. I was working on behalf of the storage team at that point. But I happened to know a lot about VMware networking too, right? It was like, we're all going, I'm going between the tables. I'm talking to the other guy, whatever. I'm talking to this guy, this person. This person. It was like the, a day of like wheeling and dealing and all the vendors paying for different food to be brought in to get everybody on the same page. But at the end of the day, we got it done. Everybody left the room happy. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously it took someone like you to mediate that conversation. Uh, and this comes back to, we won't touch on this for too long because I'll go on a rant otherwise, but <laughs> the value of someone who's gone through something like a VCDX uh, in that scenario where there's conflict between teams is critical because the methodology that we take when we approach a problem, you know, I personally don't care if I've put together an idea and someone goes with a different one that's better. I would actually exactly. really like that because I've Please, actually Please come up with something better. Please. Yeah. I actually sort of somewhat jokingly said this in a couple of meetings because unfortunately I knew the answer already um, or I was very confident I knew the answer, I should say. But I'm like, if you can do this a better way, please do it. I would love to know. But as far as I know, this is the only option or the best of the bad options that we need to go through to resolve this specific problem. If we don't want to go this way, I don't mind, but we need to do something to address this risk. Can you please help me? Mm -hmm. you know, tell me why my way is a bad way so we can find a better way. Um, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of the time it's just people's opinion and it's not based <laughs> on fact. But um, I think it's good. We, we should be challenging each other. And, and security teams, for sure, are definitely looked at in a negative manner by most they companies. Are. Because of like, most of the time, they're pretty cool. Though. That example you gave. But it's so important that it's sort of like the storage team as well. Like storage team, oh, they're so slow to provision something. But they're like, yeah, we can't do it in a resilient way. So we don't want to give you storage that's not resilient. So we're going to take a bit of time to fix it. So they're not always the bad guy. You've just got to understand each other's perspectives. Exactly. So again, that's why you get Melissa involved to uh, deal, <laughs> deal with critical situations because uh, she's probably a lot more polite about it than most of the, the guys <laughs> in IT. Uh, we need more women, women in IT for sure for many, many reasons. So... Let's talk about, uh, I had a good list here of stuff, actually. So let's actually jump onto your VCDX journey for a minute. Uh, <laughs> since I, I sidetracked us a little bit, let's jump onto that and then let's circle back to a VCDX approach to ransomware. Yeah. Wow. The VCDX journey. It kind of feels like a really long time ago that we were like, sitting together at a table at VMworld. I think you said something along the lines to me of like, when you're ready, let me know and I'll be one of your mentors. And mm. that kind of happened uh, when I was ready. So, you know, I love talking about the VCDX journey because Josh and a lot of others were a big part of it. Um, Cause that's one of the things you often do as a VCDX, right? You go and seek those with more experience to kind of exactly what we do at end to end, right? Kind of check what you're doing uh, as you're learning, right? So like I was doing architecture work, right? But the VCDX, while it's a VMware certification, is very in-depth. You need to know everything. You need to know your networking, your storage, your applications, your DR, your backup. Like everything is fair game. 
So the value of having uh, experienced seasoned VCDX kind of look over them and be like, eh, you might want to go back to those requirements and take a closer look at them because they're not really requirements. Stuff like that, right? <laughs> I'm definitely going to um, quote you on that one. That, that's a perfect <laughs> tip. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, the VCDX journey was a really interesting one that it was always kind of a, I almost want to say it was more of a personal goal for me, mm. even though it helped me tremendously in my career. Cause it was, I had been working with VMware, um, pretty much right out of college. I was going into a program at a pharmaceutical company for, you know, new hires in IT, and I had met this uh, senior director who was had gone to my school and was doing the recruitment. And he mentioned this thing co co called VMware. So I was like a senior in college, went back to my dorm room. I was like, what is VMware? Like I had no idea, right? And that kind of set me on this wild path. And at one point I kind of said, I want to do that. I want to be that. I want to be the expert. I want to uh, learn all the things and put it all together and design better VMware environments. Because even as I was just working as a customer, I would see things done. I'm like, Ooh, this is, this is not a really good decision, but all these people are more senior than me and have been doing this longer. So I, I guess I got to let them, but this isn't going to end well, that kind of stuff. Right. So it was always kind of this desire to be the expert and it completely changed the way I look at everything. Once I go through this, pro went through this process, right. Cause it completely changed the way I looked at um, when I was working for storage under storage, when I was working for a backup vendor backup, right? Cause I'm like, no, we can't just talk about backing up the VMs, right? We got to talk about everything around it. Let's look at the network. Um, let's look at our recovery speeds. Let's look at all of this stuff. It just really makes you a more well-rounded architect, even if you're specializing in something, right? Once you have the whole lay of the land, even if you're designing storage solutions or backup solutions or VMware solutions, right? It just makes you well-rounded and you see the bigger picture. And when you see the bigger picture, you see things that people with that experience might not see. Like I've been, I, I mentioned this earlier, right? I feel like there's a huge gap between infrastructure in general, not just VMware and security. And mm -hmm. I've seen that because I've also been security minded throughout my career, right? Um, I've worked on security teams straight up. When I was a customer, I actually was the VMware security person, right? Cause I was like, you know, we need to like patch when VMware has like security alerts, like that's kind of important. So I became that person on my team because no one else was doing it and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So kind of seeing all these different worlds meld into one architecture design um, is really interesting. It, it's been a really interesting journey. Mm -hmm. And that just translates to better outcomes for our customers, quite honestly, because when you when you kind of know everything, it allows you to kind of get ahead of things, see the pitfalls, see the gotchas. Cause as we know, we all have to deal with, you know, requirements, uh, constraints, assumptions, and risk, right? So when you are working with a customer and you've got some design constraints, like you have to use that five-year-old storage array cause it's paid for, right? Well, then you know how to document the risk accordingly and maybe try to change the outcome. And if you absolutely can't do everything, any, anything about it, have them sign off the risk and carry on. Like it's kind of like, you just learn so much along the way and it means better outcomes for our customers. Mm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think everyone describes it as a journey um, yeah. and a learning experience. And one thing you touched on very early in, in what you were saying was the fact that you look at things differently now than when you did before that journey. Yeah. Uh, and I would say of, you know, I've had, I don't know, 10 VCDXs on this podcast so far. All of them have said pretty much the same thing in almost the same words is that they, they look at the way they do architecture differently now than before. Yeah. And John Arazi at VCDX number one uh, mentioned that one of the goals of the program 
when it was being designed, he was part of, obviously, as you know, designing the program, was to deliver consistency in architecture. That was pretty much one of the primary business drivers for the VCDX program. And considering I've had 10 VCDXs on and, and yourself now saying very similar things, I think I would say VCDX has achieved its goal in producing expert-level architects delivering consistent outcomes even where we differ in our opinions, we mm. might have a vendor allegiance or something like that, we're still following a very consistent approach and the outcome, even if it's using different technologies, is going to be very consistent and of a high quality. So that's yeah. something that, you know, when he said that, I was like, yeah, that's really true. And in subsequent interviews with everyone, <laughs> everybody says the same thing more. with so, no prompting. We, we, Josh wasn't like, you need to say this about the VCDX journey ahead of time. Now this is unprompted. Well, let's check the transcript, make sure we've ticked <laughs> all the boxes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really quite cool to hear that from uh, an elite group of people. Uh, so yeah, hosting this podcast and hearing similar things from lots of different people um, without any planning is, is quite, uh, quite fun actually. Uh, so let's, jump in a bit deeper. Let's go, we've got a customer, they're on-prem, they've got VMware and their favorite storage <laughs> vendor and backup okay. vendors. What are some basic stuff that they should be looking at in the very near term, obviously? So we've, we've talked about clearly patching is, is a very obvious one that's being neglected. We need to make sure we're- Patch all the things, yes. Yeah, we need, a, we need a patch and backup. So these are like no, I wouldn't even call these 101. They're, they're so low that should be table stakes. You would hope be done. they would be. So let's say we've got these two things. You know, we, we are patching semi-frequently. You know, we see a security advisory, we're, we're getting our patching done, and we are taking backups. What's the next step that we should be looking at? Um, we should be checking at how we're storing those backups and where we're storing them, right? We want to store them in an immutable fashion. Basically, we don't want bad people to do bad things to our backups. So immutability is simply no one can change or delete your backups. So we want to be making sure that we're using storage solutions that will back. Well, I guess technically it's a storage solution because your backups need storage, right? Um, that you're using a backup slash storage solution to store your backups that will ensure that even if they get in, they can't do anything. So that's kind of like the next level of that. And of course, testing them. And where I see a lot of things break is I'm just going to test the restoration of these five VMs. Everything went well, so we're good. Okay, but if disaster strikes, you're not just recovering five VMs, you're recovering everything. So if you've never done kind of a real world full scale test, you should probably do that because things might fall over and break, right? Uh, you might just end up hammering your storage array, hammering your VMware environment, and everything grinds to a halt. And then you're sitting there going, well, I have no more money. I just put it in this whole environment. What do I do? Hopefully, if you're in the VMware cloud, you just scale out and solve the problem. But when you get ahead of the problems, you can mitigate them. So if I'm on-prem and I have a second data center and I'm never getting another dollar for hardware or software, well, now I can test everything and say, okay, now I have my recovery order. And this is the order that I recover the applications in. I go with these five applications and they can be restored at the same time. And when application is three is finished restoring, that means I can go restore application seven, mm. right? So, and there's lots of automation solutions that will chain all this automation for you together or two, right? So it's kind of doing that real world full scale testing that just about no one does quite honestly, because you need to know where things are gonna break before they break. Um, that's a good one, but still kind of back of me. I would I think say that's a uh, point to expand on though, because I think if we test, 
then we can do a, a whole raft of things. I'm going to miss a whole bunch of obvious steps, so jump in any time. But <laughs> we can document what went wrong. We yeah. can then change the process and update yeah. it for next time. Right? We can test the performance of that infrastructure we're recovering to because the, the amount of times I've seen someone try to do a backup, even just a backup, not even a recovery, where it grinds their storage to a halt and basically causes themselves an outage. I, I've seen that probably in... Do you remember like environments that I've ever back in the day, right? Where there were no like VMware backup solutions and you would just mm -hmm. install agents in the VMs oh, to yeah. back everything up. And then you try to back up all the VMs at the same time. What would happen? Like, oh, I, I know we remember those days. It was absolutely brutal. Mm. Yeah. Cause basically bye-bye overcommitment. You can't overcommit at that stage because <laughs> everything's going crazy, right? Your storage array is absolutely, you know, dialed in at that point. So I remember, yeah, you, you'd have the old RAID 5 arrays and the lights would be blinking a little bit. You'd be sitting in front of the array and then the backup kicks off and it's just, it's just on. And it's like, it's like wow, a rocket. Right? You're like, oh, this is going to go well. And uh, you get about a bunch of calls. Uh, so absolutely, we've got to know not only the process, we've got to know that the underlying infrastructure can support that process. Yeah. And if so, or if not, I should say, how do we scale to support that? What are the things that are our bottlenecks? Um, and in fact, one environment I remember very vividly, it was more than 10 years ago, actually. Um, uh, what happened was every time they were redeploying desktops, so it was a, a VMware view environment at the time before, it <laughs> before they changed the name to Horizon, um, every time they were recomposing desktops, everything ground to a halt because they had management on the same clusters as the desktops. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's and they rookie, had management and desktops now. on the same underlying storage. So it basically meant that if there was a problem with one or the other, that both were brought down. And all I did in that environment was, I remember there was four clusters of eight <laughs> hosts, right? All I did without downtime, obviously, because VMware's got some amazing stuff you can do without downtime, <laughs> is I pulled out one host from each of those four clusters and I made two two-node management clusters. I moved all the management workloads off those uh, resource clusters or the desktop clusters. And then we did the recompose again. And it went from a 24-hour process to about an eight-hour process. So it was still way too long, by the way. But you know, I was able to reduce it by 300% because the problem with the recompose was the dependency on vCenter. And vCenter had so much CPU ready because of all the contention going on mm -hmm. in the cluster because it was like eight to one over committed, something like that. Right? So the database server was just sitting there in a ready state most of the time. vCenter was in a ready state. All the commands were like just taking so long to happen. Simply separating the duties actually improved performance despite the fact that we went from eight hosts, uh, sorry, we went, yeah, we went from eight hosts to seven hosts in each cluster. So we actually lost a host, but separating out those duties into you know, environments which were more suitable improved performance significantly. And at that point, that enabled us to look, coming back to our topic for today, at security, right? Separating out our duties to make sure that if one cluster is compromised, we haven't taken everything offline with us. You got it. That's actually exactly where I was going to go next. And it's funny you use that example because I think all of us have um, totally seen that example throughout our careers where vCenter is mixed in with everything else. And that's just, you're going to have a bad time. Mm. Like, so little free vCDX 101, be ready for the question. Do you have a management cluster? And be ready to defend that answer, whatever you choose. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, just, just don't try and defend that. the answer of no. 
That's a difficult one to defend. Um, not impossible, but difficult. Free advice. Um, but kind of that goes back to a really great security con a concept, which is the principle of least privilege, right? So if, um, let's say that I am not the VMware person, but I'm the storage person, but you know what? The VMware person's really lazy and said, you know what, Melissa? You just like carve up the storage and go mount it into vCenter for me. I'm just going to give you full administrator rights to vCenter. So you can mount that storage whenever you need to. I don't want to be bothered. I got things to do. Okay, whatever. Sure, I'm happy to do that for you. And I do that. But Melissa gets compromised. Guess what? Melissa shouldn't have rights to vCenter, but she does, which means when her account is compromised, you're going to have a bad time, right? So people should only have the permissions they need to do their job function. And it's kind of like, there's almost like configuration drift of permissions over time. Like, oh yeah, let me just change that. And then you never change it back or whatever. Um, so that's kind of a good one. Like just kind of segregation of duties and segregation of infrastructure um, a management at work for vSphere. Little, mm -hmm. little simple thing, right? A, a management at work. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a whole separate VLAN for VMware infrastructure. Maybe a separate domain. I don't know. Really. There's, there's lots of things. you've just mentioned, for those who, who are not aware, a separate VLAN is not a difficult thing to do. No. Uh, we're, we're not asking you to buy an entire separate infrastructure physically or anything like that. This is a very simple networking concept. This is all logical um, type stuff. Yeah, very simple to do and so much value uh, in just separating that piece out. Uh, and I've seen it not separated out. And I've seen weird things happen because it's not separated out. Like, that's not a good thing. But remember, people are going to go after things like your backup systems, your storage systems, your VMware systems. So you want to be able to reduce the access, right? People shouldn't have access to it. Maybe it shouldn't even be on the same network as all the other stuff, right? We want to, we want to protect and build walls around our critical components. So if someone gets in, they can't get access to everything versus just like a completely flat structure of, hey, I'm somehow accidentally got put into the wrong group when I was hired in this um, database admin has vCenter access. Cool, I just struck gold. And that happens like all the time. Mm -hmm. So it also kind of goes back to good auditing as well as accounts and privileges and all that kind of good stuff too. And please don't name, please don't name things, obviously, right? Like don't put vCenter on the internet and be like XYZ Corp vCenter. Yeah. Like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that, Yeah, please. naming standards, even for user accounts. Like you don't want to have like vSphere administrator as the account, right? <laughs> Oh, people do that. Service accounts. Service accounts can get you busted real hard. They should be. I like random strings of letters and numbers for service accounts, but yeah, absolutely. Just simple things like naming can like. What was the thing? I remember a friend of mine said it many years. Oh, that's right. Security by obscurity. Obscurity. Yes. I can't even pronounce the word, but you know what I mean. So be obscure with what you're doing, so that when someone looks, it's not blatantly obvious. You know, hey, here is the key to my front door. It's under the mat, right? <laughs> it's right <laughs> there. Just line up and help them get in. Um, you know, just simple things like, yeah, service accounts. But, uh, you know, I've been in, um, I remember this was very early in my career. We were coming up with new naming standards for everything for some global IT. And I was like, you need to know what the server is by looking at the name. Hmm. So someone thought that if I put VMH instead of ESX, into the naming standard will be better because I won't know it's ESX. VMH stands for virtual machine host. So I'm like, okay, mm. that's marginally better than like super critical ESX01. Mm. Like maybe people won't figure out VMH, but like, can we just go a little more, a little more random? Mm. 
Yeah, I remember some customers have got like all sorts of weird names, like Oracle and Galileo, and you know all these kind of things. It's like, oh, that's cool. I had a really kicking lab in my last customer job. The worst part of it was leaving the lab because I had my own UCS infrastructure. It was like all mine because no one else wanted it. And it was uh, the theme of naming was Batman. And Mm. I had a chassis of hero hosts and a chassis of villain hosts. And the fabric interconnects were Batman and Robin. Oh, cool. (laughs) Like, it was fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, like, from a security perspective, that's kind of helpful. And it's also reasonably easy to remember when you have a theme around it. Um, So not that bad. So we've talked about now the fact that we're going to have backups that we're going to test. We're going to patch. Uh, We're going to separate duties, least Mm -hmm. privilege. Um, We're going to test our recoveries. We're going to put it into a a separate environment and see what breaks. And we're going to update our documentation. Really giving away a lot of free IP here, I realize. Yeah, we are. What, what, what's next? What are, what are we doing um, next? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a big can of worms that we're probably not going to be able to delve into too big, but monitoring, mm. right? Let's, let's find the bad stuff before it actually, not necessarily before it happens, but as it's happening maybe, right? So we know encryption is a thing. We know what encryption looks like, like from a you know vSphere perspective or a VM level perspective. We know what exfiltration will look like from a VCR perspective, from a VM perspective. So we need to be monitoring our environments for signs of activity that's not normal. And I hate to use like a hype word here, but AI monitoring and AI ops has been like a really hot topic lately. So just kind of the next step is, okay, we're in a good place where we feel like we can recover, but let's not get there. Let's not get to the point where we have to recover because we're going to catch it so fast because we're going to have intelligence built into monitoring systems that hopefully we never actually need those backups. Mm. That's a big topic, though. Absolutely. I think monitoring is key regardless of whether we're talking ransomware or just in general. Very important. Um, And even for just infrastructure in general, if you are monitoring and you suddenly see storage increasing, (laughs) you know, for an unknown reason you might go, okay, cool. This could be a ransomware issue. This could be, you know, someone just taking copies of stuff and doing crazy stuff. This is going to impact the performance of your environment. It's mm-hmm. going to impact your ability to back it up and restore it. Um, and obviously it's going to impact performance and it's probably going to cost you a lot of money scaling if there's just this exponential data growth coming out of nowhere. So monitoring is is a simple thing that's often neglected. It's very rarely documented in a design so I would even say on my VCDX journey, I was like monitoring. I was working for IBM at the time and IBM had this complete suite of, of monitoring solutions. And look, it was very, very complicated to their own admission, but at least it tried to address most areas. But having to adapt that into a VCDX design uh, was quite a learning experience because I'm like, why are we doing all these things? And then when you ask the question, why? Some of them are like, oh, wow, this is super important. We need to make sure this is there. And others are like, you know, this isn't a physical server that's running Windows, right? And then, like, you you can scale it back. So you don't want to unnecessarily monitor. Right. It's a balance. It's a balance of obviously what's appropriate for the environment. But that certainly taught me a lot um, about what can be monitored and then obviously what is valuable and, and what is not. And simply asking the question, oh, why do we monitor that? What are we looking for? And my favorite one was always monitoring CPU usage. So we used to get at IBM, sorry for throwing IBM and all my old colleagues under the bus, but we used to have all these alerts all the time coming up because we hit 80% utilization. 
and you know, oh, eighty percent, we've got a CPU issue. I was like, you should give me a medal. I've designed your <laughs> so efficiently that it's running at eighty percent and it never hits a point of contention. I'm like right in this sweet spot of optimal usage and you know, minimizing hardware and stuff like that. So when that alert pops up, all I want is a thank you, right? <laughs> that's what I was aiming to achieve for you is is have efficient use of your infrastructure. Um, so knowing the threshold where there's a problem um, and in the context of if it's ESX, you want your CPU utilization to be high and you right. want your ready count to be low, right? And the opposite one, I wrote a blog about this about 10 years ago, you can see a huge amount of contention with very low CPU utilization if you have high ready because all right. the CPUs can't actually use all the virtual CPUs can't get on the physical cores. So if you're just monitoring CPU utilization and you see 20%, you might think this is a great thing. We're good. Whereas, Don't worry about I'm it. I'm like 20% CPU utilization actually doesn't tell me much. Um, if anything, I would probably say that's probably going to be a bad thing if I had to choose good or bad. Um, but when we monitor, we have to know why and in the context of that environment. So you can't just take a design done like Melissa or my VCDX design. We can't just copy <laughs> and paste that for you no. in your current environment. It doesn't work that way. Uh, there may be components we can definitely, you know, learn from and, and take out and, and whatever, but we have to make sure it's right for your environment. And this is the key. When you use a, a reference architecture or a best practice guide, like these are good little guides to kick you in the right direction if you're not sure and maybe something to help you ask the right question to then investigate and answer. There's no reference architecture that I've ever seen that was fit for a customer out of the box. And, and here's why. And here's what a lot of people going through the VCDX process, I think, struggle with as they get started. Everything needs to be tied to a business outcome, right? People get a little weird sometimes when you kind of say best practice or stuff like that, because while we as architects use it to guide us, right, that best practice was written by an expert in their subject area. But what they didn't have visibility into is the environment that we're working on, the unique requirements in that environment. So best practice might say one thing, but in our environment, with our business-driven requirements, that might not work. Or constraints. So that, that right. We might simply not be able to do something that we want to do. And that's, I think, some of the hardest things that people kind of struggle with, that conceptual model, as they start the VCDX process, right? Remember, there, there's a business reason we do everything. As much as, like, we're all a little nerdy and love technology and want to get the biggest, baddest, fastest server, right? There's got to be a reason we're doing that. And that's going to get tied to business outcomes. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. I think a lot of technical people come from being sysadmins or really nerdy. Right. You know, they've built, they built their first computer in their basement or whatever, and, and they've come up. And when they become an architect, for me at least, I, I was a technical architect for many years and then I realized, oh, hang on a minute. Even if I'm the best technical architect in the world, if I don't add the business component, then my value is is really quite, you know, reduced. So, yeah, looking at the enterprise piece and the solution piece and tying it together is so important, um, especially for ransomware. Because when you're going to talk to a customer or talk to your, you know, your boss and try and implement a ransomware solution, you've got to justify it. Oh, this is cool. Yeah. I love SRM. I love this backup product. I love this. I love multi-cloud. Right? No, <laughs> you have to say something like, if these risks happen, right? The likelihood is X. The impact is Y. Here is how we can mitigate them. And you have to talk about the business downtime, the cost to the business, 
you have to understand all these pieces before you even look at a technical solution because the technical solution will be tied back to what you're trying to achieve for the business. And the CIO may be a technical CIO. Um, a lot of CIOs are not technical and there's pros and cons to having a technical CIO or not. But if they're not technical, you need to explain you know, a technical solution but in business you know, language. And this is why I think it's so important to go through VCDX is yeah. if you haven't already, you know, I feel like my business knowledge was okay when I started that journey. It was just okay. It wasn't great. But ever since implementing that methodology, you know, every time I do a design, I'm thinking about business constantly. It's not a, oh, I wonder if I can justify this because I really want the toy. <laughs> it's I'm constantly thinking, all right, the business needs to achieve these things. How am I going to do it? Uh, and of course, yeah, ransomware is an incredibly good example of where you need to tie back to business requirements. Um, you know, all you've got to do is use the example of a bank. What happens if credit cards stop processing transactions? What is the impact to the millions of customers in many cases uh, for some large banks if the credit cards stop working or if the credit card data is leaked? Uh, mm -hmm. What is the financial impact to that organization? Uh, they're going to definitely lose credit card transactions. Uh, they're going to gain a few that they didn't want as well, unwanted uh, fraudulent transactions, which they're going to then have to mitigate and take a loss on. And then all their customers are going to have to get new cards and then they have to work out where this breach happened. It's a nightmare. So I think what we're talking about today is just such a hot topic. Um, it is. And I think we have to make sure we're not focusing on every customer just on ransomware as well. We've got to focus on other areas too. It's just a, it's a little piece of the story, but it's a critical piece. And like it, part of what we do is architects is, you know, when we're starting to work with a customer, sometimes we do help them identify the areas that they need to work on. Cause sometimes they're just like, Hey, I know this is a train wreck, but I don't know what kind of a train wreck and I don't know where to start. So you guys see a lot more environments. You have a lot more experience. Can you kind of guide us in the right direction here? Like that, that happens more often than not. Mm, absolutely. Um, one thing I always say to customers is it's very important, whatever the topic we're looking to talk about, whether it's a business problem or a technical one, most things sit on top of the 101 layer. So they <laughs> sit on top of the virtualization layer. So if our 101 layer is not really well designed and really well implemented and maintained and, and patched and all these things, anything that sits on top becomes a house of cards. Right. So ransomware to me is one of those things like a plane crash, right? Planes don't just crash because one thing failed. One engine fails, you know, sure it's annoying, but no one cares. You keep going to your destination. You don't turn around. The passengers probably don't even know most of the time, right? But it's when you have concurrent issues like failure one, failure two, failure 10, 12, 13, 14, that's when a plane goes down, right? So the yeah. same is true in IT. You know, a ransomware attack is unlikely to occur just from one issue. It could, but if you have 10, then when these attackers scan your environment, they go, oh, wow, this is low-hanging fruit. I've got 20 different ways I can compromise this environment. Let's go. These are a great attack. Whereas... If you just get that 101 layer reasonably well, you're going to be reasonably well architected and secured. Those attackers are going to go after someone else. So it doesn't take much to be above average in this space right. and make yourself less attractive as a target. So I would say any organization, you should 
look into ransomware and at least get a basic understanding of where you're at, do a current state assessment with people like us, and then have a look where you're at. Let's solve the first layer, right? We don't have to boil the ocean and, and spend, you know, two years on a massive project necessarily. No, we're not going to do that. Right? We just want to get the first layer secure so that those attackers look elsewhere. And you would be surprised how little you have to do to become an unattractive target. Right? It's like walking down the, you know, in your favorite city in the world at 3 a.m. in the morning, you know, with your, your headphones on, right? Someone's probably going to try and mug you, right? Because you can't hear what's going on and it's dark and no one else is around. You're in a dark alley or something. Let's not put our IT environments in the dark alley at 3 a.m. in the morning by ourselves. Let's just eliminate that and make it less attractive. Uh, so I think that's probably one of our aims is just make sure our customers are, are less likely to be targeted in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, VMware have a bunch of uh, bunch of technical solutions as well, uh, which are helping try and mitigate these things. Do you, do you want to give some thoughts on other vendors as well on, uh, on what products and solutions companies hmm. should be potentially looking at? Oh, that's a tough one. Here, here's what I, if you if you'd be more comfortable. I, I'm going to give a little general answer because here's the thing, right? Sometimes, and this is going back to more logistical business sense, if you're in a bad spot, procurement can often slow things down, especially in today's climate, right? Chances are that you have something in your environment that you're not using to its full potential right now, or you're not using correctly. So I would say before we go crazy, boiling the ocean of what solution should I look at? I think every organization should have a good understanding of the software suite in use in their environments. And, and this is like for everything, right? Not just a security or VMware perspective. Know the tools you have now so that you can make sure you're using them fully before you kind of go looking for new ones. Mm. Great way to introduce yourself to the security team, right? It's like, go have a little walk over and be like, hey, what, what are you guys using around here? And does it work with VMware? Because here's the secret about security people. If you actually talk to them, most of the time, they're more than willing and happy to help you and work with you, right? It's when people are always yelling at them about their firewall rules that aren't done yet and blah, blah, blah. And that's when things get iffy, right? So I would say, before you start saying, you know, whatever solutions are great out there, start with what you have in-house because you might be surprised. Mm. And that's well, why I see a lot of current people... state assessment, which is something we always push, is let's see where we're at today. What do we have? What do we not have? And what can we do better with what we have? I think it's a great concept to uh, for everyone to think about. Yeah. You know, if it's, like you say, procurement might be the, the issue. Uh, it might be just flat out you don't have budget. It might be they want to go through their checks and balances and procedures. Uh, it might be you have to go out to RFP, which will delay things, you know, a crazy mm -hmm. amount of time and more than likely not get you the things you need anyway if you go to RFP and tenders. Exactly. And like that. But, yeah, if we look at what we have today, Talk to our security teams, talk to all the people in our organization uh, and actually get a, a solid understanding of where we're at and where everyone thinks the gaps are. Some of those things we can probably address with what we have today. Uh, and a lot of like VMware customers, you know, I mean, out in the competitive land, people say it's shelfware sometimes. A lot of the time customers actually have this software licensing, which is, is literally sitting on the shelf being, you know, unused. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. Right, that you can actually, like if you've got an ELA, you might have access to a whole bunch of tools that you didn't know you did and you don't need to buy anything. You just need to go through a design phase and, and work out how you're going to use it. But, you know, that avoids the delay from procurement or budget or whatever. 
and you might be able to solve all your problems with what you already have. So that's actually something I didn't think of just now. So uh, <laughs> on my list of things to ask, but uh, that's, that's a great tip is do better with what you already have. Um, and I think that's true broadly speaking in, in infrastructure and, and everything is you've probably got a reasonable amount of good stuff. You've just got to do things like right sizing to make better use of it. Right. Um, and like the example I gave, separate the duties out with the existing infrastructure. It created a great outcome just by optimizing, you know, what we had. Um, so I was thinking what we could do to, to close out and we can keep going for as long as we want is talk about a couple of like horror stories or even just one horror story of you know what the issue was, you know, what the impact was and then mm. what the resolution was and, and sort of some timeframes to give people an idea of sometimes these things can be resolved quickly, but a lot of the time it's a nightmare and it takes a long time to resolve. <laughs> oh, man, horror stories. I got How so long many. have we got, hey? Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. going to be a 12-hour podcast if we go I know, right? Well, okay, I got a good one. Snapshots. Everybody loves VMware snapshots. They so especially We're love about them. Backups now, right? Yeah, same thing, right? Backup snapshot. <laughs> no, by the way, they're not. Um, but you know, when a VMware and this is this had to be. Uh, I don't even want to think. I'm going to like date myself. This was a very long time ago, right? Because um, a lot of people in application teams were still getting used to the snapshot technology, and they essentially not saw it so much as a backup, but as a, a good tool, which it is for, hey, I need to make some changes on this VM. Let me snap it. Because if I blow it up, I can go back, right? And then everybody's happy. Except when things work, people forget to go back. Mm. And then they got to change something else and they take another snapshot. And they forget to go back. Right. So this is like a, a thing that happens. People leave all these snapshots running and that causes a lot of problems. Um, not necessarily when the snapshots are running, if you have a half decent infrastructure, hmm. right, because it's basically just writing all the rights to a separate file and it was going to write the rights anyway. So like whatever. Right. <laughs> the issue is when you realize, oh, no, I have 10 VMs that all had 10 snapshots on them. I need to get rid of the snapshots which means I need to write all this data back into the real VMDKs. And when you do that on all the VMs, all at once, everything comes to a grinding, grinding halt. Because they're all in the same data store as well. Exactly. Right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, I don't know who started this. I have no idea. But someone decided, and like I, I still don't know to this day who did it, to start cleaning up the snapshots and... um the storage array just like fell over. It triggered some kind of weird, and I'm not going to use vendor names, right? It triggered some random, super random bug in a very specific vendor storage array, this process. And there was literally no way to fix it. Like the vendor was like, yes, here's a bug. And we, we have no way to fix this bug. You, mm. we can't do anything. You're just going to keep on hitting this, hitting this, hitting this. And the solution was literally to rush order a different vendor of storage array as quickly as possible and install it and start migrating VMs to that storage array. Wow. Take everything off that wasn't in snapshot, uh, get everything we could off or this array and just trash the array basically because it was useless. Damn. This actually sounds incredibly similar, eerily similar, <laughs> in fact, to a design scenario 
that uh, me and a few former colleagues wrote for an enablement class where we talked about, <laughs> you know, what would you do to mitigate? It was a troubleshooting scenario for, you know, a boot camp that we ran. And it was, okay, cool. We're trying to migrate off from environment A to environment B. But the moment we migrate, performance goes to the floor. We've got to stop the migration. What do we do? And it was just this cascading of, of little incidents, exactly like you just gave. And yeah, I mean, if you've got to order a new array in that scenario, okay, cool. You, you've like, oh, you've got this great fancy new array. But the constraint is not the new array. The constraint is the old one. So when you go to move something, even something small, from the old array, which is struggling, which is in this compromised state with this bug, to this new environment, that's more load on this old, inefficient storage array. So the migration itself, which is the required thing to resolve the issue and get off the old one, may not be able to work. You may actually have to optimize something else here to give it enough headroom to even do that data movement, assuming the procurement <laughs> happened and installation happened and design happened all in a timely manner, which it definitely wouldn't have. It would no. have just been doing it. I think it was about two weeks till a new array was up and running, which was like two terrible weeks, but that was like pretty good. Yeah, that, that's really um, But But here's the funny part. And this was, I don't remember the VCR version, but it was before storage vMotion was in the UI. So mm, you had just have to run it at the command line. You remember so that was like, a little we, tool someone wrote? <laughs> Yeah, I remember I hated the command line. It was so annoying. Some guy wrote this little tool, which just I remember that. Put it in the background. The best tool ever, whoever wrote that story. So trip. we were like scripting the moves, but then they would fail. So you had to like put in the script, the log and the intelligence of it fails, whatever. And we would just like every night be like, all right, we're going to try five tonight. Yeah. How many think are going to make it? Like it was, yeah. it was like a multi-month <laughs> problem. It was horrible. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Manual storage emotions. I tell you yeah, what, we take for granted some of these cool things VMware does, don't we? Like, <laughs> when you think back. No, incredible. I mean, it's a great example, like just using a technology the wrong way. In fact, I did a LinkedIn post the other day. It was a, a guy pouring water into a, you know, out of a jug into a, into a bottle and he's spilling a lot of it. So the, the LinkedIn post was saying, oh, how inefficient that was. And then this overarching manager gave him a funnel. And then the guy didn't know how to use the funnel, so he turned the funnel up the wrong way and he was trying to pour the water in the small end and not the big end. And then there was more water splashing everywhere. And then the person came over and like hit him over the head with the, uh, um, with the funnel and then used it incorrectly, pouring it the other way. And I just remember thinking, yeah, we've, sometimes we have the right tools, but we just don't use them correctly. And snapshots are uh, that example is whether it's a VMware snap or an array snap, a lot of people think they do things that they don't and the things that they're good for, they don't actually use them effectively uh, for that purpose. Right. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a great horror story and, and one we've all one seen. One of my favorites to this day. Yeah, and it's, it's such a simple one. Like snapshots have been there for a long time. We've all used them. We've all got a lot of benefit out of them. But I would probably say that Oh, maybe that's too much of a generalization. I was about to say, I feel like snapshots have almost been a net negative because I've seen so many people suffer problems from misusing snaps, um, even just filling up their storage arrays. Like you've got these yeah. really fast, ultra-fast storage arrays out there now where you can take pretty much as many snaps as you like and it's all, all metadata, it's all very intelligent. But the capacity usage keeps going up. And, and I had a customer not, not long ago who were putting on snaps and they were actually hitting the threshold where they had to pay more and, and scale. And uh, it's like, oh, okay. 
cool, maybe we can snapshot things more efficiently um, or only when it's required uh, rather than just a catch-all, you know, let's snap right. everything all the time, every hour because we need an RPO of an hour. Um, in fact, that's probably something we, we should discuss a little bit. Um, we've, we've skimmed over that a little, probably my fault, is what is an RPO and what is an RTO um, and, and why should customers care about this? Yeah, they're, they're kind of important. Um, so recovery, RPO is recovery point objective. It's the point in time you're going to recover to. So basically how much data can you lose? Uh, and RTO is recovery time objective. Um, and how long does it take me to recover? What time do I have to recover? A lot of times I'll just talk in terms of recovery objectives if I have customers that aren't quite getting the difference and then we'll kind of spend some time on it. But they're super important because... Unless we do, unless we know our RPOs and RTOs and they come of something out of something usually called a business impact analysis, right? We got to get everybody in the room and we got to talk about these apps and we got to talk about the impact of the business. How long can it be down and how long do we, how much data can we lose and how much time do we have to get it back, right? So we all need to have a fundamental understanding of that because that's going to impact how we architect things, believe it or not. Because if I'm talking about an RTO of an hour, an RPO of one hour, that's a completely different design than if we're talking about, you know, 12, 24, 48, 36, completely different night and day. We're going to use different technologies. We're just going to do things differently. Um, and the so that's something that's, on the end of the check is going to be significantly different. Yeah, right. Uh, the lower the RPO and RTO, the more expensive it usually is. I'm just going to go out there and say it. Uh, because we're, we might have to do things like synchronous replication or have really short replication intervals and make sure that we have enough capacity everywhere to power things on like that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's going to be fundamental to our design. And a lot of customers don't necessarily have a handle on that going into the design phase of a project. Like sometimes they'll just be like, wait, what do you mean? So it, it is sometimes we do have to go back and kind of get everybody in that same room and like start talking about these things. Yeah, absolutely. So a really good example there is, you know, if you have a customer that says, oh, we can't afford any data loss, pretty much <laughs> impossible. Like, you know, there's, there's ways and means you can try and do that, but, you know, it's very unlikely you're going to achieve that over a, a lengthy period of time. But if you have your workloads in like a gold, silver, bronze is what I always see in the market. Like these yeah. are gold, they have to come up first and then they need a, a one-hour RPO and a one-hour RTO. Okay, cool. And then you have like silver and bronze with, you know, lower levels. Okay, cool. But then you get given a spreadsheet. And I had this recently. You get given a spreadsheet. Gold, silver, bronze are the tabs down the bottom. And then in each tab, you've got all the VMs listed out, which first of all, fantastic, right? They've at least listed their VMs. But then each of them had a different RPO and RTO under the title of gold. And my feedback there was very simple. So you've got 1,000 VMs or however many it was, pretty much with individual RPOs and RPO, RTOs assigned. This is not manageable, right? Forget it. It's way too complicated. What is your tier for gold? Work that out. All the VMs, put them in there. What is your tier for silver? Right. Work it out for those. Three tiers is already enough management and making sure things are compliant with that. Uh, is already difficult enough. You can't have a thousand VMs with a thousand. I gotta say, sometimes VMs. I have a tier I throw in there called plastic, right? <laughs> and that's like the stuff that like no one really cares about. That's like best best effort. Like sometimes people, so I always do gold, silver, bond, plastic. Yeah. Um, for those that like you know, people don't care about. 
Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, best effort is fine <laughs> as well. It might be like test labs and stuff like that. Yeah, you, know, you don't want to lose them, funnily enough, because your test labs. So we're still going to be protecting them, right? But it's like, yeah, we don't really care if we get them back. Like, if it's a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks, whatever. Yeah, exactly right. So I think defining what your requirements are is, is so critical. There's no point talking about a technical solution until, like you said, you've got everyone in the room and you've agreed what can and can't be the situation from an RPO and RTO perspective. And if you say to someone, like I always use the example of a bank because people seem to get it. If you're down for an hour and you can't process credit card transactions for an hour, what is the hit to your business, right? And what is the probably hit to your stock price um, from this outage Mm. as well? Cool. This is the amount of money you should consider is at risk from these issues we've identified. So what percentage of that do you want to pay insurance and get us to help you mitigate these risks? Um, and just that conversation opens people eye, opens people's eyes, I find. So if a customer has an outage for, let's say, one day and they're a multi-billion dollar company, then we're talking tens of millions of dollars a day of, down, of issues, at least. Like that's just the, the, the minimum. So if we could mitigate that risk and bring it down to an hour for spending, you know, $1 million, like 10% or 1% of of that lost revenue, I think that's quite an attractive amount. But if a day's downtime costs us 10 million bucks and the solution to solve it costs us nine. That's when we start running in trouble. That's like, okay, there's, there's no return on investment here. So as an architect, we need to map those things together, work out roughly what the impact is, and roughly what a solution might cost to mitigate that risk significantly or shorten the window. And then that's, that forms the basis of your business case um, for these solutions. Uh, and ransomware is one of those ones where they're just going to grind you to a halt, encrypt your data. and Or, stay, or steal it. Yeah, steal it steal and it too. delete mm-hmm. it. So what is the cost to you know have that data breach? Right, You might be, you know, your regulators for whatever country you're in are going to have a field day with you if you have a data breach. Uh, So that's going to be a huge burden on your organization probably for a long time as well. So let's say we, you know, we're able to get back online, you know, instantly by some magic wand. Well, we've still breached the data. The data's still out there. So all your regulators are going to come down on you hard and ask you for a root cause analysis. So the smartest people you have in your organization and more than likely external people like us will come in and we will help you do a root cause analysis. And then we'll go, okay, here's the 20 different things we've got to do Mm -hmm. to mitigate these risks. The cost of that is enormous because the regulator is not going to say, oh, yeah, just do it over the next five years, just budget it No, they're going to say do it yesterday. Yeah, it has to be done yesterday. And the cost of doing things that quickly is round-the-clock work, right? Highly experienced people, huge teams of people, the project management. And whereas the cost of doing it right from day one, you know, may seem expensive, but it's way cheaper than doing it after the fact, uh, especially when you have to rush it and you've got overtime rates and all this kind of stuff and you've got, you know, 10 different external consultants all trying to work together because you need so much manpower to condense these projects into such an urgent time frame. So best advice ever is do a basic level of mitigation as a minimum day one. Don't do anything without some ransomware and DR piece built in um, because even if it's just 
the, the first layer of the project is get stump, something stood up which is capable of having another piece put right. onto it uh, as part of the initial design. And a lot of times it is, right? A lot of times it might be a phased approach. Like I've met with customers where, you know, we did a project and in this phase of the project, we only enough ha- had enough capacity to protect uh, like tier one or something like that or gold, mm. right? And with the understanding of that within the next three months, phase two starts and then we'll protect silver and bronze. Mm. Like I've, I've seen that happen more often than not actually. But getting, I mean, of course, everything was backed up, but I meant like mm. recovery capacity. Yeah. Um, more often than not, that's how things will go. The chances of being able to get budget to do everything at once is usually pretty slim. Mm. And usually stakeholders are going to want to see some level of results before they commit to more. So they're going to want to say, hey, guess what? I can tell you for sure that we can recover our tier one applications, our gold applications, we can meet our RPO and RTO of one hour. And here's the proof. We test it once a week. It's automated. It's good to go. Here's a report to your inbox. Have a nice day. And they're going to be like, here, take my money and fix the rest of the environment. Yeah, That's usually that what works. happens. The, the wallets <laughs> open up when you show an outcome. Uh, exactly. In my experience. So I can come in and talk all day and they can say, oh, Josh, wow, you've got a VCDX. Great. But where's my outcome? Right. So your certification is not an outcome. It's show them some value, deliver an outcome, and then you know, land and expand is the, is the term I think salespeople yes. use. But as an architect, we want to go in, give an outcome as quickly as possible, yes. and then, you know, talk about the journey. Uh, because the other thing is, uh, and John Arazi had mentioned this on his podcast as well, you know, architecture is not a point in time. Oh, sorry, architecture no. is a point in time that then needs to grow over time. So the design I did for you yesterday may well be out of date today, right? There might be things that we need to add to it. So it should be a living document. It should be updated constantly. Um, And that's why I like the idea of having architects, uh, if they're external consultants, not just having like VMware PSO come in and do a point in time installation design because they have the skills to do a lot more than just a point in time. So have your architect on a bit of a retainer. Get them to come back in on a regular basis, even for a day, right? Check on things. Make sure there's if there's new patches or security issues or new mm-hmm. uh, initiatives that that's being thought of and documented uh, throughout the life of a solution. Um, we can't just expect a design that we did three years ago to be amazing today without any changes at all. Like it's it's just not realistic. Um, if people like us and and our VCDX colleagues we do a design, the the chance of things going wrong is maybe very low, but we're not magicians, right? Right. We're just human beings who have done a, a at the best in that point in time. So, you know, whatever our, our BCDR solution is, it's going to have to evolve. There might be a new app that gets introduced the week after our design that yeah. has new requirements, which we can't necessarily meet. That happens more frequently than not, actually. So often. <laughs> I can't tell you how many designs I've done where like a month later they give you a call, hey, we've just installed this new software and we're running out of space. I'm like, why didn't you let me know? I could have designed for that. I could have made sure you were okay. Um, but unfortunately in organizations, sometimes communication you know, is not as efficient as what we'd like and yeah, we miss things. So definitely over-communicate. Um, to yes. your architects, and we can generally. We want to know it all. A lot right? of There's stuff. Thing is, too much information. Tell us everything. Yeah, exactly. Assume we're kindergarten children. You've got to tell us everything, <laughs> and uh, and we'll probably do a, a good job. Um, but uh, that that's very cool. So yeah, look, ransomware is such a hot topic. I think if we we wrap up a little bit here, we've got ransomware. Let's just do the basics. Let's patch. 
Let's yep. test. Let's make sure we've got an environment we can recover to. You know, the multi-cloud hypervisor on hyperscaler solutions are a great way to dip your toe in the water, make sure things work. Um, it's also a great way to test, you know, the latest tools if you don't have them on-prem. Um, yeah. If you don't have NSF, for example, you know, bang, get get AVS or get GCVE, you know, and you've got NSX, you can test it out and, and your security team will probably love it. Uh, <laughs> and they'll probably want to do it on-prem and you'll probably have a champion to help you do it. Um, separation of duties, you know, least privilege, all these things, they're not buzzwords. They're actually very important um, to organizations and security. So, yeah, I've missed a lot of stuff there, Melissa. Do you want to throw a few things in? You, um, you got the bulk of it. Let's, let's go back to basis, basics. Like Josh said, let's put that foundation in. Let's kind of go below even that like level one stuff. Let's get the table stakes in place. And at the end of the day, let's make ourselves a less attractive target, right? Because if they have trouble getting in, they get in and they can't get to anything, they might leave. And hopefully we find them in the fact that they were in there, right? But we want to make sure that we kind of have the basics taken care of and go from there. Yeah, absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head. Let's be as unattractive as possible to a <laughs> ransomware attacker. Um, and that's probably a good place to start. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Melissa, it was a pleasure. I've, I've learned a lot, uh, no doubt, from having you on here. And I'm sure our listeners appreciate your knowledge and experience. So thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, I look forward to doing many more um, customer case studies with you <laughs> in the future that we can we can share with this audience. Absolutely, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you very much.